Hello and welcome to the WMQ&A Halloween 3 special. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week, we're making good on our threat for May and doing an entire episode dedicated to the 1982 cinematic curiosity Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And to help us, we've brought in two guests. Uh, first, uh, it wouldn't be a uh, WMQ&A special without that most special of guests, our third amigo, Rob Lynch. Rob, welcome back. Trick or treat, gang. Yeah. Hey, I was, I was taught that when somebody needs help, that you help, as long as there's not going to be a problem. Is there going to be a problem? <laughs> <laughs> and our second guest is a subject matter expert. You know him from comics like Black Stars Above, Undone by Blood, and Coming to Me. Please welcome back Lonnie Nadler. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for, for coming uh, with us on this journey, uh, especially because, you know, I'm pretty sure a year ago when you were on the show uh, was the first time Matt started what became a running gag of asking horror comic writers whether they'd seen Halloween 3. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I wanted to start uh, by, by checking in with you, Lonnie. Uh, you know, it, it, it feels weird to say that anyone's had a good year this year, but, you know, you, you had a critical hit in Black Stars Above. You got married, uh, you know, you and your frequent co-writer, Zach Thompson, put out uh, one of my favorite books of the year in Undone by Blood. And it was recently announced that that book was being eyed for adaptation by AMC. Uh, you know, kind of touching on that, you know, do you remember where you were or what you were doing when, when you got the news that, you know, uh, uh, they, you know they were interested in making a, a TV version of the book? Yeah, I mean, you're right in that it's it's strange to say it's been a, a good year. <laughs> it's been such a horrible year <laughs> for the world. Um, but oddly enough, the, the interest in adaptation came almost simultaneously with the, with the start of the pandemic. Um, so I think it was like a couple weeks into it um, that Zach and I heard that there were numerous parties looking at Undone by Blood for adaptation. And uh, we had several meetings with different people and, and over the course of a few months uh, and a couple talks with uh, Norman Reedus and his people, it became clear to us that they were the guys who were uh, most passionate about the source material and who, who understood it on, on a really authentic level. Um, and so the deal was in the works, you know, these things take a long time but I'm sure. told that this one was actually pretty quick in terms of how, <laughs> how fast uh, they were on the legal side so it was just this weird thing that Zach and I knew about um, and Sammy knew about for a few months and we were just sitting on this egg and uh, week after week we were asking Aftershock like are we going to announce it are we going to announce it um, and finally they, they did uh, so yeah it's been a strange time but I think I was talking to some people about it and, and hearing people have individual good news is like a, a heartwarming thing for them to know, like not everything is horrible for everyone. <laughs> so glad I was able to, to bring some joy to people that way, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, how involved are you and Zach in the process at this point? So it's still really early in the stages mm -hmm. of uh, development, but part of our, uh, part of the, deal is that Zach and I will be uh, co-executive producers um, going forward. So at the very least, we'll have some creative say um, in how the, the book gets adapted. Uh, obviously, we would love to position ourselves to be more involved and as involved as they'll want us to be, but all of that will be kind of dependent on uh, who they bring in to showrun it and, um, you know, where the network ultimately decides to take it. Mm. Uh, and then in the meantime, you're bringing the book back for a sequel uh, next year, telling, you know, a, a different a different story, but still working with, uh, you know, uh, uh, working with the story of Solomon Eaton on one hand, but then telling a different story uh, on the other. Uh, I remember, you know, that the last issue came out and I think, you know, the announcement was actually in the last issue and just being 
very excited. How how does you know sort of the response to to Undone by Blood, you know, regardless of the adaptation, just talking about the actual comic itself, you know, differ from other stuff that you've worked on, like you know, say uh, uh, an Age of X Men or a Come Into Me. It's been really interesting because Zach and I were so uh, involved in the Marvel side of things Mm -hmm. and Undone by Blood was the first creator-owned thing we'd done after like two years of only writing superhero stuff. And so by the time we got back into creator-owned work, uh, when we were writing the first issue, we were like, we got to make this exactly what we want it to be. We don't want to make any concessions Um, and and we got to give in to all our, all the little things that we don't get to do on a superhero book mm-hmm. in terms of like pacing and, and having silent pages and stuff like that, uh, that just doesn't work on that side of comics. So we just indulged in it as much as we could. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, that's also the kind of stuff that readers responded to. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think people who find Undone by Blood and read it are, are the kind of people who are looking for that kind of storytelling in comics. Uh, so it was really rewarding in that sense. Um, it's also, I think, the only book we've done where we found the audience uh, grow after the first issue. Mm-hmm. Usually, you know, it's the kind of you have most people reading issue one and then it slowly declines and you might find a few new readers as the trade comes out. Uh, but with this, it was kind of like every issue, it seemed like there was new people picking it up and uh, excitement was growing, which is something uh, that's, you know, the most you can ask for is, is more people discovering the work. So we've been really fortunate in that sense. Certainly. Um, do you think, you know, the fact that Undone by Blood was one of those books that got caught up in, in the pandemic pause, right? So the first issue comes out, um, maybe, maybe it was the first two issues, but, you know, then there was that huge gap before the series picked up again. And, you know, there was time built in to sort of create more you know, of like a, a fan evangelism for it or just more time to like talk about the book while it wasn't out yet, but it was eventually going to start coming out again, that you could find more people on the back end, you know, getting interested in it because there were, you know, there was more time to build hype for it. Yeah, I definitely think that that's certainly part of it. Uh, I'm a big believer in the idea that, um, trying to figure out how to say this concisely without completely shitting all over the industry but (laughs) most most publishers especially when it comes to creator owned nowadays are so focused on the like four or five issue model um and they're like you know if it does well they'll continue it i don't generally think that leads enough time for an audience to find the book i understand it's a risk you know publishers putting out a 10 issue series is if the book's a dud then you know they lose a lot of money but i think you know, going back to like 80s and 90s independent comics, a lot of them needed time and issues and issues and issues to build an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always go back to like Preacher, for example, if that was just a five issue series, it wouldn't have been very good. You know, like Ennis and Dylan took a lot of time to figure out what that book was going to be. And it wasn't until you got to the second arc that it really started to become Preacher. Sandman's Um, the same way. I mean, that, that first arc of Sandman, there's bits and pieces of it, bits and hope in hell, 24 hours. But if you ended it after issue seven, you wouldn't have gotten I mean, maybe eight with Sound of Her Wings. And that's when the book begins to sing. Yes, uh, exactly. And it's, yeah, and the Sandman is one of my favorite books, but it, uh, certainly not the first volume of it. It's not my favorite, Uh, but you you need time in a medium like this to to discover what the book is. Um, And so I I don't remember exactly what, oh yes, talking about the pandemic. So we had, because there was a little bit of a delay there, I I do think you're right in that more people were able to find the first couple issues that had come out. Um, It gave Zach and me more time to promote it. And so I think by the time the third issue came out and uh, also, people were probably taking chances on books they w- normally wouldn't have taken chances on because there wasn't new stuff coming out. Um, all of these factors combined with uh, the announcement of uh, the adaptation uh, really ultimately worked in the book's favor. 
I mean, not to mention the fact that when the books, you know, finally started rolling out again, it was really like the indie publishers who led the way, you know, Marvel took a backseat, DC was too busy doing its own stuff. So, you know, the books that I was talking about for that three year span, you know, yeah, we were all still talking about Ten of Swords or whatever, but like, I'm waiting for Undone by Blood to come back. I'm waiting for No One's Rose. I'm waiting for Billionaire Island to come back. You know, those are the things that I'm, I'm, you know, out there writing about for those two months that there's nothing. You do know you said three years a minute ago, and I know it felt that way. (laughs) Did I? (laughs) This year's been a decade. The same thing. Amen. Uh, That's funny. I didn't even notice that you said three years. Exactly. (laughs) As co-host, it is my job to point things like that out. Thank you for saving me from myself, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Sorry, I don't remember what the question was. No, it's. I, I think we <laughs> we got all the way around to talking about you know just the, sort of the effect that the you know the pandemic pause had on the book. Oh so. right, yeah. I, I just wanted to say that I, I really have to commend AfterShock um, in the way that they, as a publisher, dealt with the pandemic compared to mm-hmm. uh, some other publishers that uh, left their creators high and dry. Um, AfterShock was the f- almost immediately emailed us and they were like, we know this is going to be hard on everyone, um, but we want you to know that we're not pausing any books. In fact, we're green lighting more books and any outstanding payments are going to be made this week. Um, And so they really, really looked after their creators. And honestly, without that, the the pandemic would have been a lot more difficult for a lot of people. Um, So, yeah, I just want to say that, you know, Aftershock on, on top of putting out, uh, you know, top tier quality as much as they can, and, and a lot of um, investing a lot into their their printings. They they're a company that treats their creators well, and um, I, I can't say that about every company. So that means a lot to me personally. Uh, I'm I'm definitely very glad to hear that. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how sort of the the, the five issues uh, and out model often that doesn't you know lead a lot of room to gain traction. Um, you know, the way you're doing at least a volume two of this now, it's almost like you're sort of exploring a, uh, a season model, almost, you know, come take a few months off, come back, tell another story. Um, you know, how are you finding working uh, in that format? Um, I love it. It's, it's really um, interesting to me because I've never got to extend a story um, this long. Uh, so it's like, because we've written five issues, we know the world so well, even if we're changing one of the storylines, it's still the same tone and the same voice. Uh, so writing the scripts is a lot easier. Communication with the artists is a lot easier. Um, and it's just a lot more fun uh, all around. It, and Undone by Blood was a very naturally flowing book from the beginning, but now that we're continuing, it just feels like a, even more natural than it was before. Um, and, and in terms of the, the model, sort of this, um, I don't know, even know what we're calling it. <laughs> it's kind of like a <laughs> semi, uh, anthology and in, in the same way that, you know, Brubaker did criminal and, um, or like shows like true detective or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the kind of continuing stories that I like in, in television, um, or like Fargo or whatever. Um, because I'm. I don't think very well in terms of long-term storytelling, like uh, planning out a 40 issue thing. Like I, that's just, I can't do that. So having the opportunity to, to continue it, but sort of make it its own contained uh, thing. Uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a while and getting to, to do that here has been just great for, for, and Zach and I are so thrilled with the way it's going so far. That's awesome, that's great. Let's uh, let's get into the, uh, the the reason for the season here. Uh, so yeah, we're 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 talking about Halloween three, season of the witch. Uh, John Carpenter's uh, attempt to turn Halloween into an anthology. Uh, there's that word again. Uh, series versus you know the, being the Michael Myers show uh, every time. Um, again, uh, talking about what a weird year. It's a weird year to be watching a movie obsessed with masks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that hit me. As soon as I started watching, I was like, oh, didn't remember this. Yeah. yeah. Like we're, we're watching stuff that was like put out this year. People aren't wearing masks and we're having like, you know, you sit at home and you have that like weird itch, even though it's just like 
the TV show doesn't need to worry about that context. But uh, yeah, um, this was this was my first time seeing it. But uh, you know, what is your guys' respective uh, history with this movie? You know, do you remember like when was the first time that you guys saw it? Um, um, it was it was a while ago. But I, I I was when I was in in uh, university, I used to like binge watch horror movies because I'm sleeping it been like a good 10 years since i'd seen it Mm -hmm. i'm about the same my parents had a very weird sort of thing like you know r-rated movies no not until you're you know 17 but i could read friggin stephen king at the age of 14 (laughs) and i'm sitting here i'm reading the shining i'm reading the stand i'm reading all this but i couldn't see the movies but so when I got to college, it was like, okay, I'm going to start watching every freaking horror movie that I can see. So at some point or another, I know I saw it in there. Um, I think I probably watched it again a couple years ago when I was listening through the back catalog of the uh, bad movie podcast, We Hate Movies. And they do a, every October is all horror movies. And I mean, and their definition of bad movie is is loose. I mean, they always sort of start an episode off with, "Hey, just we want to remind it's okay to like a movie. Just because it's not a good movie doesn't mean it's not a fun movie." And so that, that's especially true in October this year. They're doing all sequels. It's all twos. <laughs> uh, Species two was last week. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, this week's going to be Wishmaster two. Uh, I didn't know there was a Wishmaster one. <laughs> oh, there are many Wishmasters, sir. <laughs> it, it was a horror franchise from the eighties or nineties. There are many of them. <laughs> you know, for me, uh, I really wasn't big into. Uh, renting videos growing up. I was a child of the, uh, the network television premiere. I mean, this is before you had the CW and the UPN and, and everything like this, where you had independent stations and their major block of programming, you know, Monday through Friday, eight o'clock were films that they would run. And, you know, in October, it would be nonstop horror movies from the seventies and the eighties. And I think that's where I call it the bulk of, you know, my, my, uh, horror upbringing were heavily edited made you know for television <laughs> horror presentations and I, I know that's for sure the first time that i saw it and i remember being very kind of confounded by it because uh i had seen the first one mm-hmm. and where's michael myers <laughs> well they're going to be showing him at nine o'clock so. <laughs> <laughs> they will. Um, um one thing that struck me as interesting, because I, I, like Matt, I, you know, had listened to like a movie podcast talking about it before I actually saw it myself. So that probably colored some of my expectations. But then uh, Saturday night, you know, I tweeted out, oh, I'm watching Halloween 3 for the first time. And like, I got a good chunk of people saying, I love that movie. I watch it every year, you know, and, and it's definitely like, I can see why, you know what I mean? It's, it's got a charm to it. I think it's just because like, oh, it's the Halloween movie that's not the Michael Myers movie that makes it, you know, stick out like a sore thumb a little bit, but, you know, actually in a good way, because it is, you know, it's it's a very interesting standalone movie. It's an oddball gem. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't Halloween 3, if it had been just released as Season of the Witch or something else, I think it would be maybe not more fondly remember, but be remembered in a different way than it is. But because it's a Halloween movie without Michael Myers, it's an oddity versus it being this creepy little movie. Yeah. I mean, it's almost the kind of thing you could have like soft piloted into its own Halloween. Uh, yeah. I think the thing that everybody really remembers is the silver shamrock. Yeah. I was saying that. I want an earworm that's going to bore into you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's so prevalent in the first like 20 minutes. They just, it's relentless with that commercial. <laughs> and at first I was like, God, like the, is there no subtlety in this? But then by, by the end of the movie, I was like, you know what? Uh, I commend them for, for going that hard with that song. 
you know, talking about that though, like there's a weird sort of lack of specificity in, in the whole, you know, marketing uh, behind these masks because it's just three sort of generic Halloween <laughs> characters, right? Um, it, yeah, it's like a, it's a jack-o'-lantern, a witch, and a skeleton. Now, I was thinking about this, you know, this, so this is 1982. So we're, we're like, like still like a couple years out from sort of the rise of like the Saturday morning cartoon and the afternoon cartoon. You know what I mean? Like kids at that point aren't obsessed with like He-Man, Thundercats, G.I. Joe, Transformers, uh, you know, that sort of a thing yet. So I, I can't think of what would be sort of like the hot Halloween costume that year. But even if you look at sort of the montage of trick-or-treaters, you know, as the sun is going down, they're all getting ready to, to crowd around the, the TV for the Halloween presentation at, at nine o'clock or, or whatever, which also, why are children that young watching the first Halloween movie? <laughs> but like the, the ads keep talking about the big giveaway. They don't actually say what they're giving away at any point that I could hey, there's, remember. There's some dark forces at work here. And, you know, who knows what was... Uh subliminally imbued into that 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 jingle <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that's another thing you know that, and i was talking to dan about this is you know one of the strangest hooks of the movie is that you do have you know some supernatural element i mean with, with i mean we're going into spoilers here obviously oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. For a 40 year old film <laughs> <laughs> you have the whole you know the whole stonehenge element and you know bringing back an age of you know black magic and then kind of randomly you have a sci-fi element and I think it's, it's something that's like very, very uncommon. I mean, it's one thing to have a science fiction film that has horror elements, but to have something that's nominally horror to introduce a random sci-fi element to me is really unsettling. I mean, the whole reveal of the Android mm-hmm. to me actually is even more effective than alien and alien is like one of my favorite films of all time. But when you find an Android in a Halloween movie to me was more surprising than, you know, Yafit Koto ending up, covered in blood milk you know all of a sudden yeah it was a, a, a strange reveal but ultimately I, I think the writing is uh, one of the strongest parts of the film at, at least until a certain point <laughs> but the uh, yeah all that that subplot with the the robots was so weird um and in the moment where um the doctor's in the factory mm-hmm. and he opens that door and finds the like automaton grandmother knitting. Like that legitimately freaked me out because I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and I was just like, that is a genuinely scary image to me. And then her head falls off or whatever. I was like, what is happening right now? Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that. The like the science fiction elements. You know, the only thing Did I can really- Did you say have... that piece dates to 1756? Yeah, it was really ridiculous. <laughs> oh, you should go sometime and look up the European automatons of the 18th and 19th century. It is fascinating. Huh. I mean, they, they weren't like walking to, but they, they had, they built clockwork people that could write and that could perform tasks. It's fascinating and creepy and some of them many of them have broken down but there's still a few that exist in museums that can do all sorts of stuff and it's like okay like play <laughs> like play the piano or write the, the sentences and such yeah i love that so steampunk awesome. is real and not just an annoying affect that some people are into <laughs> a little bit <laughs> wow what what <laughs> always what came to my mind this time and possibly the last time not the first time if you would all spend time watching doctor who those things remind me of autons especially how stiff they are and mm-hmm. that sort of mix that doctor who often does of horror that always winds up getting a sci-fi answer to it because it's doctor mm-hmm. who and it has to be aliens or science and never really you know monster monsters but you know a monster with robotic henchmen made me think of autons or the police from uh, THX 1138 which I thought mm. were the most unsettling part of the film you know from a visual standpoint you know you have all that sterility and everything and then these faceless metallic you know, yeah very, very timeless um, I think it, it, it's talking about the science fiction elements I, I think because I was reading about the film um, after I watched it. And 
I guess it was originally written by, by Nigel Neal, who was a, a British um, screenwriter and playwright, I think, who was known for his like science fiction and uh, a series called The Quarter Mass. Um, and I just looked now and apparently he was actually offered to write for Doctor Who and turned it down because he hated the show so much. <laughs> <laughs> But, but this Nigel Neal guy who, you know, is, is a pretty seasoned writer, his name is not on the credits of, of the film because uh, apparently he, he wrote it as, as a, a horror film, but without gore and stuff. And then the studio was like, no, no, it has to, it's a Halloween movie. It has to have gore and stuff. So he took his name off of it. But the story is, is apparently largely uh, as he initially wrote it, which I think is why it, it, is elevated above some other uh, genre fair um, and, and probably why it also has that uh, automaton and Android stuff. Thrown in there. But, but also the, the, the deep seated idea of, of Druids getting revenge for the cultural appropriation of so <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and, you know, not just any Druid, you know, lead Druid. And, and this kind of leads into my thing about, you know, it's interesting because it's also corporate horror, mm-hmm. which is something, you know, I think we really, really saw for the first significant time in alien which i just mentioned um the idea that you have a corporation that is meaning to you know to to, to do malfeasance or whatever um and i've often said you know i'm a a big uh, proponent of putting together uh, double features if you ever want to put this together with another great film like similarly there's uh larry cohen's the stuff oh yeah if you guys have ever seen that about the yeah Great. Alien yogurt, killer alien <laughs> yogurt. <laughs> also a brilliant satire. I mean, you have a great, another great, you know, baddie performance from Michael Moriarty. If you've ever seen uh, Cue the Wing Serpent, also from Cohen. Um, but, you know, thematically, they do share a very uh, similar sensibility. Which... And also, uh, it, it, back to, you know, what I was saying about the lead uh, druid, if you uh, notice, it was the Irish actor uh, Dan O'Hurley. O'Hurley. Who will a few years later play the head of OCP in RoboCop? And fun fact was the Walt Disney analog in Batman the Animated Series in the episode where Walt Disney kidnaps Mister Freeze to make him immortal. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, Grant oh, wow. he's in the episode uh, Deep Deep Freeze. Oh God, yes, Deep Freeze. Yeah. He the one uh, with this, the cold pun name. <laughs> yes, yeah, the Mr. Freeze episode with the cold pun in it. Um, yeah, there's this Walt Disney analog. You know, he, he has a you know theme park. And he kidnaps Mr. Freeze. He wants to you know freeze his head because it would make him immortal. Early <laughs> he voices Grant Walker. It's th- this has been another useless Batman fact. Very distinctive voice too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, I mean that's that that's an interesting thing. Like. I, so, you know, you mentioned that about, about the guy who plays Cochran. Uh, Rob, you know, I think yesterday you were telling me all about Tom Atkins, the guy who plays Dr. Chalice. Oh. I, I know nothing about the cast of this movie. Okay. So going into it blind, I, I just like, okay, so these guys all came from soap operas, trauma movies, and porn, right? Like, <laughs> that's it. They were never seen it yet. <laughs> I, I was wrong, obviously. but No, no, no. A- Atkins is one of the great faces of, you know, early 80s horror. I mean, he was in The Fog. Um, he was uncredited in... Uh, creep show he's the father who actually takes away the ec like magazine from the child um it was in the great night of the creeps now you know uh, tom atkins is one of those figures that you'll see at almost any given horror con like week after week and he's one of those characters like a kane hodder or a linnea quigley which you know no matter how many shows they appear they're always going to have a line out the door always so much fun to me i mean it's it's more than just slapping down your 20 bucks and getting an autograph you kind of just hang out with them and <laughs> it's a that's a great experience he's just like one of those names it's just you know it's going to be a good show you know he's going to mm-hmm. be there and he's such a good character in this the like kind of absent drunken doctor <laughs> absent father drunken doctor who's like kind of sleazy but he's also weirdly charming and like to make that your protagonist is so, such an odd choice, but it, but it, it's what makes the movie. Uh, he has work. the charm, the charisma and the hamminess of like a Bruce Campbell <laughs> yeah. with that, that, like that blue collar intensity of Charles Bronson. The man <laughs> yeah. is a cult oh, casserole. Like, just... <laughs> <laughs> right. 
the the first scene where we kind of get a taste of that when he when he goes back to the hospital and he's walking down the hall with the the older nurse and he just grabs her ass i'm like <laughs> what it what is happening <laughs> and, and that, this and, does and, not work in the year of our lord 2020 <laughs> no it it it, it definitely it definitely doesn't and then it's like oh and also he's got a thing going on with the coroner who doesn't wear gloves while she sorts through evidence and and also he and and ellie are definitely going yeah there it is it's happening right now <laughs> yeah and it's it's like they were aware of it because he he's sort of um you know he plays he asks like, oh, should I sleep in the car? Or should I get another bedroom? So like yeah. they knew enough to know that he was lazy. <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, it, it's interesting to watch. I was expecting him to be sleazier, to be quite honest. I wasn't expecting him to get these sort of uh, uh, like consent checks in there uh, for, for a movie from, <laughs> from the 80s. That is fair. He did see consent. <laughs> Boy, they... they could not have gone out of their way to make his wife his ex-wife <laughs> yeah. more of a shrew to let you sympathize because if she had been at all anything but hectoring and terrible you would have been you would have sympathized with her but this is the 80s so you could get away with making her just the worst for good or ill mostly <laughs> Very much ill in this case. Yeah, and, and I kind of liked the end where, where, you know, he calls home and, like, begs her to to take to, like, get the masks off uh, the kids. It, and she doesn't do it because he's such a piece of shit. And it's well, they're so, ungrateful like, little shits anyway. They deserve yeah. it. <laughs> so, like, kind of pays off in a very strange way, whether it was intentional or not. But her, like, yeah, her nagginess. Uh, and, and his absenteeism ends up being the destruction of their children. <laughs> but that, like, that's another sort of lack of specificity moment because, you know, obviously he calls it and he's like, get the mask off the kids. But then he's calling like one number that I guess he thinks will control every TV network, yeah. which, you know, again, one of the things that I don't understand is why is this Silver Shamrock thing on every network? Like, Maybe I've been, you know, raised on 40 plus years of, of you know, multi-level <laughs> marketing campaigns, but it's like, no, you make the deal with ABC and that's your big tie-in. But then also you would actually specifically say what the giveaway is. Like, I keep thinking of like early 80s Marvel comics where that had like the big yellow banner on it that said you could win, you know, this comic could be worth $2,500 or you could win a Toys R Us like Schwinn bicycle, not like just a big yellow banner that says, hey, we're giving away shit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Dan, did you want to watch the movie? You know, the big giveaways, they're going to have cockroaches and things crawl out of their orbs. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the you know, yeah, yeah, they're going to kill your children. <laughs> you know, all the money that they've taken in went into building androids, stealing a stone from Stonehenge, and then buying all of the airtime they possibly could. <laughs> now, let's go there back was to nothing that. left over logic. to hire writers. <laughs> let's go back to the logic of that. They stole Stonehenge. <laughs> and it's given away. It's mentioned in passing in the very beginning of the film. And, uh, you know, we had a... Uh, the stones went missing. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then they, when, they, when you see it again, he's like, you wouldn't believe how we got it here. It's like, <laughs> I don't, but I'm watching it. <laughs> Spoiler, clearly Spinal Tap did not steal it. <laughs> <laughs> It's Chekhov's giant rock. <laughs> it's mentioned in Act One. True. <laughs> I will say though, when I saw the giant piece of Stonehenge in like the the seventy sci fi looking lab, I, I I did groan a little bit though. So I was like, oh, they're bringing that back. Like, I, yeah. I, it, it took the longest time for all the Irish stuff to really like cook for me as to why. I mean, and I guess that, you know, pretty, I, like I shouldn't know from the beginning why it's by a company called Silver Shadowbox making Halloween masks. Fair, fair, but <laughs> and, and but but remember the guy who runs that motel, he is Irish AF. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, all right, that guy he took me out of because I'm like, are you like fresh from the the famine of 1848? Like, what's going on here? Chris Claremont couldn't have written somebody as Irish as him. <laughs> sure, and Begora. <laughs> <laughs> oh man the irish stuff was it was particularly strange to, to see in a halloween movie <laughs> and like i i wonder if, if that was part of their point was like we're gonna give people something that they're not going to expect 
whatsoever, especially from the Halloween franchise? Like, were they purposely messing with the audience in that sense? Or was it just kind of like, that's just what the story was? And I have no idea. <laughs> it's almost a soft justification for the happening. Let's take a, <laughs> let's take a horror movie around Arbor Day. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I, I got to say, when, you, when you've got paganism and horror movies i mean you're you're coming nine years after the cadillac of pagan horror movies which is the wicker man which is always the first thing when i see this it's like well it's fun it's not the wicker man but it's fun you know that's really interesting you bring that up because that's something that i actually kind of thought about i'm not going to say that the endings are similar but his pleas you know shut it down shut it off kind of reminds me of edward woodward you know oh god oh god as he's burning, you know, then to end it on that note, I, I did see a little bit of a similarity. Yeah, I definitely felt that too. It's even just them, once he goes to the, the weird Irish town in California, I was kind of like, oh, they're doing some sort of weird wicker man thing. Um, I don't know if it was like completely earned, but I, I was like, oh, I'm here for it. I'll, I like the wicker man. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy into a weird Irish version of this. <laughs> and I, I, was, I still have yet to see the movie that would finish the triple feature in this. I still have to see Midsummer, which oh. is, I, I, I really want to. I missed it in the theaters. And every time I want to, my, my wife is not a horror movie person, like at all. So I have to watch the horror movies when, you know, I have the house and the TV to myself and Midsummer's two and a half hour long. So finding that two and a half hour chunk when I'm not working or need to do other things around the house is not as often as I'd like, even in the pandemic year. But <laughs> I just hate to say this. I, I think you were kind of better off missing it in the theater. I mean, for as great of a, you know, cinematic experience as it was because our, my, my wife and I, our experience with going to see any like the A24 horror films in the theater We've greatly enjoyed the films, but the audiences have not. And you know how divisive, you know, like The Witch has been and Hereditary. Um, not A24, but Annihilation. I mean, all Luca Guadagnino's uh, Suspiria. Every single one of those we saw in a theater. And you could just tell this tension from the audience that we're just not enjoying it. This, this, this wasn't a haunted hayride. This wasn't jump scares. This was not what they paid, you know, their 10 bucks for to see. And kind of being very vocal about it and it kind of kills that vibe a little bit and uh, oh like they were like people were talking like during the film and arguing with the film demanding oh. it to be more entertaining and scarier than it is that's that's unfortunate yeah the only one of those i saw on the big screen was hereditary and I would go first thing on Saturday or Sunday morning and when no one else was at the movies. So I would often be, you know, me and like an elderly couple and one other movie buff who would be there for a, you know, 11 o'clock showing of hereditary or <laughs> the prodigy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I can absolutely see that being the experience. Uh, but yeah, I think I got a little of that when I saw Parasite. Somebody just wasn't getting yeah, that sucks. But they fortunately left after the first like 45 minutes and I was able to sit there and watch the remaining hour and change <laughs> without the person who was just like, I don't understand. <laughs> I thought it was like, a, a very, I don't want to say broadly entertaining film. I it, I, everybody that I've shown that film to that, you know, are not attuned to watching anything subtitled greatly enjoyed it. Yeah. I think it did. Yeah. That was probably this guy's issue. That I think he wasn't enamored with the subtitles to begin. I think he went in not wanting to see a movie with subtitles and whoever his partner was brought him along and he just couldn't take mm. it because, and, but yeah. <clears throat> I talking about, theater experiences i mean i haven't been to one since the pandemic started but i think halloween 3 actually would have been great fun to see in a theater now with with people who like the film yeah um because like it is like a, a midnight showing you know like a, exactly like, oh, yeah, a rocky horror I think, type it's, thing. I think it's a perfect movie for that because it 
the pacing at the beginning is so slow, but it's, um, I found myself at least getting really invested in the mystery. Um, and John Carpenter's score is so good. Yes. And then by the time it starts getting really bizarre, it's like, you know, everyone's ready to, to sort of laugh and have a good time and mm -hmm. whatever. Plus you can get like an audience sing along of the Silver Shamrock song. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is slow, except for the moment when the guy immolates himself in the car, which <laughs> got me. Like, I, again, my vague, I don't know the Vegas, only the Vegas records are seeing it the first time, but that second time I'm like, he just, it was like, oh God, all right. He just broke. <laughs> yeah, like yeah the, it was, it's really shocking. There's like two, like two moments like that, that were like, truly like sort of like horror moments for me was that and uh when poor marge gutterman got lasered in the face oh my god that the makeup effects like the mm -hmm. aftermath of that were some of the the best i've seen and like oh, yeah. very inventive and i was then the bug starts coming out of her mouth and that's mm -hmm. just like this is this is really inventive stuff and i was not expecting it because i didn't remember that like at all from from the first time I'd seen it, mm, that was the age. That was really the beginning of really graphic and gnarly special effects. I mean, from American Werewolf in London and The Thing from Carpenter that same year. And that was kind of a golden yeah. era for that for pre CGI, you know. And, and I think it, it goes to to your point earlier. If this wasn't, if this didn't release under the Halloween banner. I think it would have had a different legacy. Um, and I think more people even now would, would watch it. Uh, but the, oh, it's a third film in a series. It's kind of like, it's hard to get people on board for that, even though it has nothing to do with the rest of it. You have to, you have to use comic marketing logic, right? It's a great jumping on point. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you guys another, this, this could be a whole other episode and maybe we'll do this next year. <laughs> Fast forward ahead. Um, the Exorcist 3, if you guys are a fan of that. Now, that was when it was written by Blatty. It was titled Legion, and it was mm -hmm. a direct sequel to The Exorcist. The Exorcist 2 does not exist. That, that was a, <laughs> that, there was a rumor that John Borman made a film of that. That never happened. But, uh, you know, the true sequel to The Exorcist was a story called Legion, which only shared a few characters and everything. And then when they made the film, I think a lot of people were going in expecting that Exorcist experience. And I know the studio sort of shoehorned in, like, reshot, you know, reshoots to make it more of an explicit sequel. But I think if that film had just been titled Legion as planned, I think that would be, you know, I mean, the movie is kind of remembered a little bit more fondly now, but I think there would have been a much better, you know, history of it. Yes. After. Yeah, for sure. Thinking about sort of one of the other shock moments uh, when, when the kid slowly decomposes into a pile of, of bugs and snakes, uh, like the Oogie Boogie reveal in Nightmare Before Christmas, that family... <laughs> That was a very Willy Wonka family, yes. right? It, like it was basically Mike TV and and um, uh, Brooke, uh, Violet Beauregard's dad. Uh, you know, <laughs> there were all these sort of like caricatures and, and like and it's right after they tore this whimsical novelty uh, factory with, full of you know secret mo rooms and an eccentric, secretive uh, uh, business guy. And for a second, I was like, "But well, wait, who are the Oompa Loopas? And then I realized it, it's like the army of androids who all look like jared kushner for some reason <laughs> <laughs> just that same sort of like creepy pale energy mm. <laughs> yeah yeah there was definitely it is you know ultimately the 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 weird bastard child of willy wonka and, and the wicker man <laughs> and like <laughs> I can't like say that. any like other that. movie has ever done that. So it's, it's certainly unique, if nothing else, despite it being, I guess, a derivative. <laughs> that, that dad, the, the first time when he's meeting the doctor and he's introducing his wife, I'm like, is that dude trying, trying to aggle a threesome? <laughs> he's, he's making me real uncomfortable. <laughs> In many ways. And, and you know, like, they... As soon as they're at the motel and they introduce the the other woman who's buying the masks and then his family comes, you just know they're there to get killed. <laughs> yeah. No, they were created to die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Felt bad about Marge though. I, I wanted better for her. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've already killed the bum. The other single person can, the other per, single, not, you know, single in relationship, but the only person standing on yes. their own. She yeah. can get away. <laughs> but, all right, so um, I'm glad you brought up the, bu- the, the bum because that guy was a cartoon character. Like he wasn't even a movie character that, you know, unless the movie was Robert Altman's Popeye. Like it was. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah. And, and that's why I can call him a bum because he's not like a homeless person or whatever. He is a cartoon bum. Oh yeah, no, no, like like you'd almost call him like a, like a tramp in sort of like the 1930 sense of the term. Carpenter outdoes it though in a later film, uh, The Prince of Darkness, which I'll, I'll get into in a second. But uh, the lead bum, as you could you call it, is played by Alice Cooper. <laughs> really. And talk about another movie that has, you know, that, that's very much a horror film. And then you have this one element. I mean, you have Liquid Satan that's in a basement. <laughs> and all these supernatural, you know, creepy happenings. And suddenly the main character is receiving dream images from the year 1999, from the future. Which, I, 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 again, I, I thought was the most unsettling element. It, it, it was it like scenes science. from the Family Values tour? Oh, <laughs> He saw the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! The uh, the opening uh, bouncing all over. I'm bouncing all over. But the uh, the the opening sort of credits imagery, where it's like all these like hyper close ups of the the jack o' lantern image that you know ultimately is used in the commercial. That to me felt like very dawn of personal computing. Like, I, you almost get, like, I was expecting it to ask me if I wanted to play a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there were, yes, definitely. And I think you can tell it's from that, it's very much inspired by that era and the people working on it didn't quite understand computers. Because <laughs> I, I really love that opening sequence. But once they get into the, to the factory, and there's just all the androids like standing at TVs hooked up to computers and they're not doing anything and just like pushing buttons. Uh, and eventually like um, Dr. Ch- Chalice, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he just like knows exactly what buttons to press to like make everything misfire. Uh, it's a unique system. <laughs> that, that, that charm that only comes from movies or, or, personal computers were, were just becoming a thing. Uh, There's a Mary Sue joke in there too, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You ever saw him get that train in? <laughs> our yeah, our hospital like, has exactly one Apple IIe and he used it once. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and even like the thing with the, you know, the, the chips, the microchips in, in the masks is like, mm-hmm. that's a very like limited understanding of, of what a computer chip is capable of doing. You, you keep using well, apparently that they are capable of harnessing the power of Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> uh, it, it was also fun watching him and Ellie, who by that point had been replaced with an android, but we don't know that yet like skulk around the, the, the lab or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it almost felt like like he had to do like an Arkham level real quick to just kind of like sneak out of there. <laughs> yeah. And then he just, yeah, and then he just dumps that box of computer chips all over the place. And that, yeah, that... The, the perfect circle to disintegrate. That, like, I'm not actually clear on what happened to Cochrane. Like, you know, just disintegrated I, or became one with Stonehenge. Yeah, you know, I guess it leaves the door open for a sequel <laughs> looks like he kind of froze or something i don't yeah. know <laughs> but he has this like look on his face as he's going too like clever girl <laughs> <laughs> close your eyes marion <laughs> oh. uh, you got me <laughs> oh man <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> Yeah, the end kind of has that, well, we've written ourselves into a corner. Let's see how, to, how we find our way out of this one. And a wizard did it. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's true. It was the, uh, yeah, the wizard was the villain. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, as fun as the film is and as, as great as the, I think they build the mystery at the start. Once it gets to the last 
act of the film. It's kind of, oh, they, they're trying to tie all this stuff together and <laughs> they really didn't know how to do this at all. Uh, and it kind of, unfortunately, uh, to me, loses some of its, its initial charm because it's so messy. Uh, <laughs> and like things just don't make any sense. Like the, the bugs aren't in the snakes like tied into anything and yeah the, the microchips and stonehenge don't all fully tie together but um ultimately other than th there's like you know maybe a five minute sequence in the end uh i i, I think the movie is, is a pretty solid film i respect the fact that like it does it does you know when it decides to resolve it resolves itself fairly quickly but it's an hour and a half like it marries itself to like a 90 minute time frame which i mean that's movies used to be that long you know you know what i mean like you go see a movie now you're you're, you're strapping in for like two and a half hours this was you know it was edited for cable from jump basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it still has a, you know a multiple characters and balances there's a lot of weird ideas and mm -hmm. isn't it's not paced super quickly it still takes its time but yeah comes in under that hour 40 mark I mean, there, not to say that there aren't horror, great horror movies that are that two hour plus, mm -hmm. but I think horror often benefits from not having to be that long. It lets you, if you're given that sort of, I mean, Twilight Zones work in a 20, whatever, 24, 26 minutes at that time of television. Sure. Because you you're constrained into that and you don't kind of have to wander. It has to ratchet the tension up quickly versus it meandering. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've got <laughs> enough plot, you can go longer, but you have to have enough plot. Well, that's kind of a hallmark of anthology horror anyway. And I think for me, that, that's something that was kind of appealing. I mean, you don't really have to invest a lot in the character. I mean, if you do, that, that's a bonus and it's great. It's really kind of all about that hook, about setting up that hook, reeling it in and you got him. I mean, that, yeah. that was like the EC approach. And, you know, I think you similarly did see that with the outer limits and the twilight zone and the tales of the hook. That's, that's what Stephen King called it. And, yeah. and it's interesting King who writes the opposite of that in a lot of ways, who writes horror that is deeply personal and that mm -hmm. is so invested in character over plot in so many cases, uh, which is as I think we've had this discussion before, where, Rob. You like the tale of the hook, and I like that slow burn character. I mean, I do love that. And oh, yeah, so do I. And I love the yeah. tale of the hook too. But I think when we say mm -hmm. that you, when we talked about favorite horror comics that one time, you were for the ECs, and I was lock and key and nail biter. Yeah. These long form. Mm -hmm character driven horror stories as my you know gold standard while and while you love that stuff and i love the tale of the hook as well yeah. it's it's a different mindset you know but conversely i mean you know on the film side i mean i think you know we are sort of in a golden age now of character-based horror i mean when we get to the end of this year and talk about our 10 favorite films of the year i think half of mine debuted on shutter this year and then you have others uh relic which was amazing which was you know pretty much all character. Um, I just saw the brilliant uh, Possessor the other day from uh, Brandon Cronenberg, which I thought was brilliant. Um, Lonnie, have you seen that yet? I've seen Relic, but I haven't had a chance to see Possessor. Do, do check it out. when you, I think you would really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I've been really dying fantastic. to... I, yeah, I, yeah, I want to... I'm gonna, I think I'm going to risk going to the theater to see it because I've been like, I've been waiting for it since I first heard mm -hmm. about it. I have to... I. Well, I actually, we're, we've moved into something that I was going to put at the end of the episode, which was, you know, great horror movies you've watched or rewatched recently. Um, on Amazon Prime, Blumhouse just dropped four films last week. The Welcome to the Blumhouse. Yeah. I watched one of them because I had heard, read, uh, heard a podcast interview with uh, the writer last week or shortly before the movie dropped uh the movie's called evil eye mm. uh the it's it's written by a playwright um maduri shikar and it is excellent and the thing is there is no 
minimal action to it until the last seven or eight minutes of the movie. It's all, it, it starts out as a rom-com. This, you know, Indian woman, young Indian woman, her parents have moved back to New Delhi. She's living in New Orleans and she talks to her mom on the phone every day. And the mother's always, you know, you know, you need to meet a nice man. And, you know, we can introduce you to someone. And she meets a guy and it starts out as this rom-com. Then it starts getting the mother is, you know, she's getting migraines. She's starting to act weird and you know there's something in her past with a man and by the end you get into this whole thing that I don't want to give anything away about where it goes but Mm. it's acted brilliantly that all the performances are wonderful and it's it's this slow ratcheting tension of okay is the mother beginning to lose her grasp on reality or is what she's seeing real in which case her daughter is in a lot of danger from something Mm. and yeah i cannot recommend it highly enough Uh, and it's from an in a mostly Indian creative the the playwright is Indian the directors mm-hmm. are Indian mm-hmm. um, it's produced by the Blums and by Priyanka Chopra so it's it's got very wow. much you know and I think all of the these Welcome to the Blumhouse films are of the four I think it's four or six I think a lot of them are from underrepresented in American cinema directors and writers. That's well, great that's to see awesome. horror opening yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that on Shutter, uh, Blood Quantum. If you've seen that, it's uh, deals with uh, First Nations from uh, Quebec. It uh, it's a zombie film. It's a phenomenal zombie film made from an all Indigenous cast and creative team, but phenomenal. Great. Yeah. Um, have you seen his first film it's called Rhymes <laughs> for Young Ghouls? No. No. Um, I love that movie uh i don't think it made it very far outside of canada but if you liked blood quantum i I highly recommend seeking it out noted i will check that out awesome um rob you touched on this a little bit uh before talking about uh tom atkins and you know kind of being one of those guys who's on the circuit uh, you know, have you had any of, you know, as, as a person who goes to horror, or, you know, went to horror cons quite regularly. Uh, sorry, I miss cons. Anyway, uh, you know, ha- have you had a chance to interact with any of the people from, uh, from the season of the witch? Uh, Stacy Nelkin. I've actually met more than a couple of times. Uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, Lonnie, we have a, a big uh, nationally famous horror con called uh, monster mania that they do twice mm-hmm. a year. And, you know, they always get, you know, three or four legends and then some up and coming people. And then, you know, some of the stranger things or the it kids and everything. But uh, Stacey Nelkin has been at a few of the shows. They have done, I think, uh, a season of the witch reunion. Um, we've had Carpenter at the show. I have met him, but uh, you know, I did have the uh, honor of meeting Stacey Nelkin. Um, I've missed Tom Atkins. I've heard so many stories about him. I've been in the same room with him. I've never actually gone up and talked to him, but it was actually uh, this this past August we were scheduled to go to a show that he was going to be at and uh, next yeah. year or the year after maybe. <laughs> yeah. Stacy Nelkins was interesting in this role because she, you know, she she looks like the kind of person that is cast in this kind of movie. <laughs> sure. I looked her up after it and, and wasn't surprised to see that she wasn't in very much um, other than this. It. it, it Am I correct? And she was mostly saved in sort of, uh, you know, B-list yeah. horror stuff. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And it's always so interesting to see with these movies, uh, especially the sequels to, you know, Halloween, Friday the 13th or, or whatever the cast is. Uh, I'm always so fascinated by that. I know we touched on it a little bit before, but this cast in particular was, um, I think, like, quite competent compared to 
a lot of other sequel fare that you see. It, it is weird. It did strike me as odd that Ch- uh, Chalice and Ellie so quickly decided to just, oh, we're going to go play detective. Like, I'm, you know, I, I'm clearly married to my job as a doctor where I sleep with all my coworkers, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take a break. You know, I'll pick up a six pack of tall boys and, and we'll, we'll go to this Irish Northern California factory town. Cause you know, I feel like playing Scooby-Doo for a weekend. Why not? <laughs> yeah. I love that, that moment where he's like calling his wife and has <laughs> just like picks the six pack up off the payphone. <laughs> it's just like, he's the most negligent doctor and the most <laughs> negligent father. <laughs> but it's like, I don't know. It's so, it's so eighties that, that you're just like, okay, like, <laughs> I'm, I'll buy it. Let, let's go. <laughs> the, the the mustache. That's what that's what that's what ties it all together. <laughs> yeah. and, and you're absolutely right, Dan. To say the Scooby Dooness of it, the you know, I I kind of wanted to hear that. You know, do 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 do. Is there like creeping through the factory? Well, the, also, there's enough like doors at that motel that they stay at that they could have just done a scene where they're running in and out different doors of the motel with the Jared Kushner androids uh, like, following them in and out. Okay, I, I just random aside, not random, it's but aside, I cannot recommend highly enough the strangest direct to DVD animated feature I have seen in a very long time. This year's Happy Halloween Scooby-Doo, where the Scooby gang team up with Elvira okay. and oh. Bill Nye the Science Guy mm. fight jack-o'-lantern people who are somehow related to the Scarecrow. Not a Scarecrow, but honest to God, <laughs> Professor Jonathan Crane, the Scarecrow, <laughs> appears in this movie without Batman. Uh, Warner Brothers magic, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, wow. I was like, okay, I need to see this because it has the Scarecrow in it. But re- that's really Elvira, and that's really Bill Nye the Science Guy. And hey, they're uh, one step closer getting Sven Gulli on the show on, on there now. So <laughs> I'm surprised that hasn't happened already. But yeah. that that is that's big Harlem Globetrotters energy right there. <laughs> Damn right. Oh man! But uh, you know, before we move into you know starting to wrap things up, any more uh, Halloween three thoughts? Um, it, my final thoughts are that that I it's a better movie than I remember it being, and I would highly recommend people watch it, especially Halloween season. I, I think it captures the mood of Halloween. It's a good enough movie that you don't feel like you've wasted your time, but it's also um, a lot of fun. And any movie that has an original score from John Carpenter is, is worth it in my books. Oh, agreed. Agreed. I actually got to see him um, when he toured a few years ago with a live band so and he cool. did his, his theme. He didn't do anything from Halloween three, which was disappointing, but actually I got a great off out of him. I did get to meet him at the Q and a, and I did uh, before the show asked him, uh, are you familiar with dark star? His very first film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He does that song Benson, Arizona, that country Western song. And I like begged him, can you please do that? As an encore tonight? <laughs> Got a great laugh out of him, but <laughs> you didn't get the song. I did not get the song. No, I got the laugh. That was good. enough. <laughs> All right. So Matt, you had uh, something you wanted to uh, wrap up with. Yes. Uh, I'm just putting out uh, something here from our little uh, group of associated podcasts and friends of the show uh, to put out some upcoming spooky Halloween episodes. So um, some of these other podcasts uh, include, you should definitely check out tighten up the defense where for the past two years, hosts hub and Corey have invited friends on and performed original radio plays in the style of EC comics called tales from the disco barn. Uh, Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, have taken part in annual crossovers where their show and the Married with Comics podcast, Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, and Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast go outside their normal wheelhouses and talk about a spooky four-part story. Uh, Previous crossovers have included the interesting uh, Mephisto versus miniseries from Marvel in the 80s and uh, the Sandman four issue 
loosely connected four issues dream country uh this year the play comics podcast doing a creator chat episode with writer sophie goldstein about her book and embarrassment of witches uh the super sons podcast will start their new not just about dc focused rebranding as gate crashers uh soon with the walking dead and have a special secret episode dropping on halloween and finally, check out Battle of the Atom for some spooky mutant goodness this week. That's a, that's a lot of good listening right there. A lot of good buds out there. But um, as we're wrapping up, uh, Lonnie, how can people, uh, you know, uh, follow everything you got coming out right now? Uh, I guess Twitter is the easiest way. Um, my handle is just my name, Lonnie Nadler. Uh, or you can sign up for my newsletter, uh, which is supposed to come out monthly, but it's more like bi-monthly at this point. Uh, and you can sign up for that at LonnieNadler.com. Awesome. Lonnie, Rob, thank you guys so much for, for coming on and uh, talking Halloween thank you. with us. Yeah, thanks for uh, getting me to watch it. Uh, I, I'm glad I did. This is more fun than a bag of pennies and a couple spider robberies. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire, meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash wmqcomics where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. You ready? Yeah. Oh, shit, sorry. You didn't take it back far enough. Oh, stop it. It's fine. Are you guys ready? I'll set it out. Happy, happy Halloween. Halloween, Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween. So do you